Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Today's episode is with the great Scott Horton. He is, in my estimation, the greatest anti-war scholar walking the earth today. Um, he's also a personal friend of mine at this point, which is weird to say. Uh, we we had such an incredible deep dive. I, I have just finished reading his masterpiece, which is not out yet, uh, but it's called Provoked. It will be out sometime later this year, I'd imagine. Uh, and I can't wait for you guys to have the opportunity to read it. Um, but because I am preparing to debate Destiny this Saturday in Nashville, which, by the way, you can get tickets over at TakeHumanActionTour.com. If you're in Tennessee, no excuses. Come out and watch. It'll be a blast. Um, but I'm going to be debating him on the U.S. support for Ukraine and whether or not that's what we should be doing. And I, I think you guys can probably guess where I fall on this. But uh, this is a, a deep dive with Scott that I wanted to do after having read his book, but before that debate, because I wanted to have all of, you know, the great Scott Horton one-liners, uh, you know, just fill my brain with them so that hopefully I can unleash some of them during the debate. And I think that you guys will find this very entertaining. We went so long that I'm actually going to chop this into two episodes because there's a hell of a lot of history here. I think this is the most important story of our time. It has the, the potential for cataclysm. And I obviously hope we don't go that direction, but I think understanding this history is kind of a prerequisite on how to avoid that catastrophe. And uh, I think you will come away feeling much more uh, uncertain as to where we're headed, uh, but much more certain as to the history and to why we are in the position we are in. So I hope that if you have friends or family that is, uh, you know, Ukraine flag in their bio, that you will send them this. And just ask them to consider it with an open mind. And obviously, I come at it from a hard non-interventionist stance. So perhaps they won't conclude the same thing that Scott and I have. And that's totally fine. But I think understanding the true history of the provocation that has come from the West uh, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine and NATO expansion is a very important part of the story, which is unfortunately not told on news ever, <laughs> like literally ever. So I hope you guys will enjoy that. I, you know, as you know, I, I've been looking for a long-term sponsor, and I am so thrilled to have found one. In fact, I am so thrilled and such a deep believer in this company that I have decided not to take compensation and instead take shares in the company. And that company is Converso, C-O-N-V-E-R-S-O. It is an app that you can download. It's available today on Apple and Android. It just came out about a month ago. It is end-to-end -end encryption it has all these all these incredible features like screenshot protect uh sensors off where you're able to just hit a single button it kills your your camera as well as your microphone so that when you're not using your phone you don't have to worry about it being a spying tool um there's no storages of messages on the server and no user or metadata it is essentially in my estimation what signal and all these other apps promise to be converso actually is uh, at this point, it is not open source, but it will be soon. They have some patents that are pending and because there's a bunch of new innovations that they want to make sure that they get credit for having created. Uh, but as soon as that's approved, I'm told that they will go open source. So I, in my estimation, this is going to be uh, a real replacement application for people that are concerned about their privacy. And I know many in my audience are. So if you are like me, make sure you go and subscribe, or excuse me, download the Converso messaging app 
either on Apple or Android. I will uh, I'll link down below as well. And last but not least, if you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Enjoy my interview with the great Scott Horton. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell. I am in prep mode, as uh, Jose calls it, sage mode, as I am <laughs> preparing feverishly for my debate with Destiny live in Tennessee, uh, Nashville, to be specific, this Saturday. And I am joined by the man, the sage himself, the one who gave me the wisdom by giving me a pre-release of his new book. I'm not sure if the title is permanent, so I'll let him uh, inform us. Scott Horton. Welcome in, man. Hey, how's it going, Clint? Great to be with you. Hell yeah, dude. I uh, I just finished your book yesterday, and you know, I, I'm certainly not one that uh, that struggles with giving superfluous uh, <laughs> praise, but man, that book is going to change the world. It is so, so damn important. Do you have any estimate on, on when it'll be completed and when it'll be out? So I'm sure my audience is chomping at the bit. No, and first of all, thank you very much for that vote of confidence in the thing. Oh, it's incredible. It's, um, it's strange writing a book, you know, working for two years on a thing. And then, uh, as I said, when I was working on Fool's Errand back years ago, <clears throat> expletive deleted, better like this, man. <laughs> you know, so, and they did. And if I can get them to read a book about Afghanistan, I bet I can get them to read a book about Russia. But yeah, um, no, I, th I think it's going to be the, I think it's going to be the, the bestseller of your life. I, I honestly do. Well, I mean, I don't know, man. It's, you know, it's what it is, is it's all the articles I should have written all along, but I'm always <laughs> fighting the last war. I'm always trying to play catch up. I can yeah. never do like Justin Ramondo where he wrote about what he should have written about that day, right? I'm mm -hmm. always writing about the thing that I needed to write about six months ago, you know? Um, so anyway, I mean, it's just a giant collection of footnotes. It's just, you know, a, a stack of assertions and I hope I put them in a, a good enough order for people to to you know be interested in yeah. um did you read the later version that i sent you was it like the 600 page version or are you still only read the earlier one? Oh, i mean i read the the first third of the uh original draft and then i the last two thirds of the book i read of your latest draft so i i think i got you know as as close to the the you know closest update as possible but man yeah. it is uh for for the audience's understanding um it is basically a you did a, a really fantastic job of of taking quotes from State Department officials, Secretary of Defense type type folks, uh, you know, UN officials, NATO officials, and and using their own words to prove kind of the libertarian case for the fact that this was such a a massive string of provocations. Is that that was obviously your intent, correct? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, you could say like I have a disorder about this a little bit. I one time got an F on a paper in junior college because I made some claim, but I didn't prove it. And he was like, who the hell do you think you are making a claim and not proving it? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, my God, you know? So I, I just, you know, and I always, you know, I guess I could say I was inspired early on by um, the likes of, uh, G. Edward Griffin in mm. The Creature from Jekyll Island and Carol Moore in her book, The Davidian Massacre, and Noam Chomsky, of course, in his books, and James Bovard, where, uh, and if you've never read Bovard, he's got just excellent stuff, especially, you know, going back to the 90s and, and the W. Bush years. Um, these just absolutely fantastic books, and they're just, they've got tons of footnotes. They prove every claim to the nth degree, and it's 
something that maybe you would think, oh, that sounds like a claim that more of like an extreme type character would make. Is that really true? And then you look at the bottom of the page and the source is the Washington Post and then you check them and it really does say that. Wow, man. You know, and so that's the way it goes. And, and you know, frankly, you know, a lot of times people don't know. I, I'm sure you recognize this in TV media a lot, right? Where the dingbat anchor doesn't know that you're not supposed to talk about that, homeboy. You know yeah. what I mean? And they go ahead and bring up something that we were going to let that die. Did you not get the memo that we don't talk about that? You know? <laughs> exactly. And, and, um, so, you know, things get out there. One of my, you know, one of the best quotes in there as far as like really making my case, like if I was, I had you in the elevator for 15 seconds is something that I think you maybe even were just referring to there um, specifically is Bill Clinton's defense secretary, William mm -hmm. Perry. Yep. Himself, he took personal responsibility for this entire crisis. Now that's circa what, 2015, I think he gave that interview. Right. He's directly, he's talking to the guardian and well, there's quotes in the book too, but I think, I forget now if this is the quote from him elaborating to the guardian or if this is the quote in the book or not. I got the correct footnote in my book, I promise. <laughs> um, but he says, no, I think this is actually from his book. This is, this is from his book. Um, he says, I'll, I'll never forgive myself that I did not do everything I could to prevent NATO expansion at that time in that way, at least. And he says, I could have called for, I could have demanded a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the president. I could have written up a giant paper with all of my objections and handed it right to him personally. Mm -hmm. Or, you know what I could have done? I could have got Anthony Lake and I could have got Strobe Talbot and I could have held one-on-one -on -one meetings with them where I, you know, maybe could have really stood up to them and browbeat them and said, no, 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 we can't do this now, whatever. And then lastly, I could have resigned over right. it. I and thought that I, was the most powerful I had. part. Yeah, he says, I wish that I had. And he says, now some people will say that it's not my fault that America-Russia relations have deteriorated to the point that they have now. And he's saying this in 15 when we got a proxy war in the Donbass already started, right? Post-second coup there. Disaster now. And he says, people will say it's not my fault. And he says, but I cannot accept that. Mm -hmm. I cannot, the Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton says, I cannot accept that it's not my personal fault that our entire relationship with Russia went all the way to hell because I was, one, I knew, and two, I was in a position yep. to stop it if I really had tried, but I wimped out, and so it's all my fault. So F me, so how do you like that? Well, look, I'm not one of those people who would try to tell him that it's not his fault. I'm one of those people right. who would agree with him that it is. That that's exactly right. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. It's the same thing you'd say anyone would agree with this about Colin Powell. Everybody knows that Colin Powell didn't want to do Iraq War II. And instead, he clicked his heels. He went out there and he lied. He took the lead in lying us into war. Yep. And he knew he was lying. And he knew that he was being used because he was the most credible member of the W. Bush government to make the case. And, that, and he followed his orders when the alternative history is as blatant as could be he could have just said no i'm not doing this i quit and right. gone on tv and said listen everybody i'm the goodest soldier of all good soldiers but i'm just telling you this is wrong 
Right. This country is not working with Osama and they're not going to attack us and we can have them any day we want and we don't need to have them today. Give me a break. And whatever, whatever. He could have said all of that and stopped the war and he didn't do it. Well, that's what makes Perry so special, right? I mean, because you, you never see these types of acknowledgments of failures and catastrophic ones. I, I was I was blown away by it, honestly. Yeah, um, that's true. I mean, you do have a lot of candid admissions, but not in that guiltily of a way. You know what I mean? Right. Where it's like, no, this really is my fault. And then the yeah. thing, like, what can you do? You can't reject that. You have to take him at his word on that. And And by the way, He's right. It's not like he's saying this, but you're going, what are you talking about, Bill? You did fine. <laughs> like, no, he has a very specific argument about what a damned bad idea it was that they were pursuing and how certain he was that they shouldn't and how he could have stopped them and didn't. And damn it, I'll think about it every day for the rest of my whole life. You well, know? That's, that, that's, that's what made the disclosure. That's what it struck me as. It seemed as if it was something that he's losing sleep over, you know, like it, it really weighs on his soul. And, uh, you know, I just, I always, I think what makes me hate politicians so much is that I so rarely feel as if they, they feel the weight of the evil that they commit. And this particular gentleman seems to have, so I have to give him some respect for that. It, it's, it's just, it's a rarity. If I don't give it respect, then you can't expect the, the rest of the slime balls to tell the truth. So, um, but to, to get into the, a little bit about what actually transpired there. Um, you know, I, I went on uh, Timcast a couple of weeks ago and I was talking about this and then I, I reached out to you to, to clarify because obviously I was doing that on the fly after just having read yeah, your right. you know, yeah, yeah. portion of your book on, on my way out to, to Virginia. Um, but the I think that the, the, the history of post-USSR Russia is, is really what the American people need to understand to understand, you know, why the relationship soured. And, and I'm curious... If you think that there is a uh, a singular inflection point, I mean, other than the the slow creep of NATO's expansion, was there was there a moment beyond that that we could have turned back in your estimation? And and who who owns the majority of that culpability? If you had to name one or two people, uh, well, it's W. Bush. If if we're it, at what point was a well, even no, 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 like it, what point was the point of no return? Yeah. It's Joe Biden, you know, a okay. year and a couple of months ago. No, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really the truth of it. But look, and they all play their part. The way the book, um, as you know, the way the book is divided is simply by presidencies. Right. You know, this is what H.W. Bush did. He was he made his promises, but he was breaking them as he was making them. He knew <laughs> that he was lying. And it was just we got to make them believe that these are our intentions until the time is right. Simple the, as the that. old head of the CIA was lying as he was making promises. You got to be kidding me. Yeah. The same guy who said that Saddam Hussein was about to roll down to Saudi Arabia and conquer them, too, if we didn't stop him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Good um, he lied about a lot of things. He lied about the bag of crack so he could, you know, lock people up for using the cocaine that his own boys had been bringing in for years. Yeah. You know? well, and, the Bushes and, and the Biden have a, have Biden, something in common. Those sentences, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just said the Bushes and the Bidens have, have more in common than we might imagine. Oh well, no. Yeah. They're absolutely the worst. And, and, and never forget that in, in 2002, well, first of all, in 2001, when Bush took office, this guy, Robinson Jeffers, who was a rhino liberal Republican from the Northeast, Connecticut, I think. He switched parties to the Democrats and gave them the majority. So the Democrats, the opposition party, 
had the majority in the upper house. Hmm. And then what happened? Joe Biden led them into Iraq. Joe Biden was the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And never mind, you know, whoever all was on the Armed Services Committee, you know, running that show. But right. on the Foreign Affairs Committee, he held two days of sham hearings where only hawks were allowed to testify and then made sure and whipped, you know, uh, Gephardt, I think Gephardt voted for it, but certainly whipped John Kerry and Hillary Clinton and the other major stars of the Democratic Party. And then that funny, that's all who the Democratic Party has nominated over and over this whole time, with the exception of Obama, is all these people who are the very worst Democrats on the war going along with W. Bush on starting a war, you know, back then. Um, so yeah, Joe Biden has been, you know, handmade and he's nothing but the Democrat party's version of John McCain this entire time, man. Yeah. Well, um, and it's, it's frustrating because he's such a doddering old coot at this point that like, you can't really, I, 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 at least I personally, I can't have the level of animus towards him that he deserves for his 50 year track record of just fucking destroying this country. But the reality is he's like, he's not there. Like he's not the one that's actually making these decisions today in my humble estimation. So uh, do you, do you think that it's like, is it the, the neoconservative, um, you know, influence that exists within his cabinet or the neo progressive? I mean, who, who's, well, who's making know. these calls I mean in your opinion? No, I really don't know. I, I would like to, in fact, it's very possible that someone has written this and I just don't know it, but I would very much like to know the story of, I mean, somebody must be trying to write about this, uh, about who is in charge. It must be Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, at least he's in the white house. I mean, Anthony Blinken, you would think is of a higher stature, I guess, but he's over at the state department. Right. Well, he's got a lot of influence, of course, but it's not exactly the same. And, I plead guilty, man. I don't know the first thing about his chief of staff. <laughs> right. His chief of staff is a super powerful guy like James Baker III had been, you know, under Ronald Reagan or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, or, you know, Donald Reagan and some of those other guys. Um, I really yeah. don't know. I don't know if anybody is running his damn government. On his <laughs> but, yeah, if you want to go back in time, he's been absolutely as horrible as can be and was worthy of every ounce of your hatred, you know. Agreed. But look, so Bill Clinton, here, here's the very fast forward version, if I could possibly do it. I'll try. Yeah, give it a shot. So H.W. Bush promised, look, if you guys will really back down and pull your troops out of Europe, we won't take advantage of that and move our forces in and we won't expand our NATO alliance. And in fact, we'll have this partnership for peace instead of NATO. We'll make NATO a political organization. And the partnership for peace, that'll include you and Ukraine and even Kazakhstan and everybody. And well, it'll be a pan-Eurasian security agreement. But of course, see, that's such a lie. This was the new world order that I was afraid. This is my fast version. Yeah, right. <laughs> this was the new world order conspiracy in the 90s was thesis antithesis synthesis man right. now america and russia joined together to create the new world empire of the white north with the nato with russia in nato as a one world army to enforce the un you know federal world government and then the rogue states like iraq iran syria north korea we're going to knock them off one at a time to integrate them all into the world system by force anybody right. who resists will be assimilated and then ultimately it'll all be for the greater glory of the un at even american expense but that didn't happen I and mean, that was totally wrong because instead what happened was dick cheney got elected president well, <laughs> And close enough. He had no interest in all that one world or crap, you know? And really, Bill Clinton didn't look, honestly, even H.W. Bush, Mr. New World Order, did not 
mean to share power with Russia in a real one world government? I mean, when he talked about the new world order, what he really meant was, as he also put it, what we say goes. Yeah. The US. America's world empire. As Lou Rockwell has said all along, forget all that stuff about the UN as the world government. The United States of America is the world government. You yeah. know, that's that's the problem, and it has been. It's um, the liberal world order. So that was that was H.W. Bush. He was shining them on, getting them to give up Eastern Europe in order to absorb it sooner or later. Right? Clinton comes in, he essentially gets right on that same bandwagon. He also sends the Harvard boys led by Larry Summers to go over there and introduce the shock therapy economic program. So, you know, as libertarians, we're very like chauvinist, right? They're like, we're the only ones who understand economics at all. Everybody else is some kind of communist. You don't know what you're doing, right? So like the neoliberals, what's a neoliberal? A neoliberal is a Keynesian. Right. Maybe he's like a little bit Chicago school, but mostly he's more like London School of Economics or like Columbia or something. And he thinks like what this economy really needs is some stimulus or just some insane thing, right? That you and I would go, don't take those IMF loans or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so these are not, but importantly, these are not communists, right? These are not, these are centrist. These are neoliberal centrist, like big business type American style capitalists. It's yeah. a mixed economy here. And that's what more or less what they were selling to the Russians. Right. So I view them as vulture capitalists. That's, I mean, that's a great name for it, but like, even if they meant well, they're not right. Right. Sure. So, that's a good for point. For example, like Ann Williamson, this Wall Street Journal reporter, her focus was on, look, I mean, the, the major thing is you need property rights and you need to like develop a system of government of representative government where that's the priority. So, which is a hard thing because one, like they might not agree with that, but you got to figure out how to get them to do it instead right. of having like a real bottom up property rights capitalist society. Instead, you had rule by decree, which the Americans encouraged because the parliament was intransigent, you know, and so which is rule by decree. But now are they ruling by decree? on enforcement of real property rights for people? Of course not. It's all just cronyism. Yeah, unfortunately, so, no. And we're talking about a society where the it was literal communism, man. Not like, oh, China has a communist party and a red flag, but they have private property and capitalism. A mixed economy, sure. very much, but still. Um, we're talking about literal-ass Marxism so that all the industry was owned by the government. The national government owned everything. And so then it was the question is, what do we do with all this? And they liquidated it to just a bunch of gangsters. And the gangsters in many cases just destroyed the businesses and took the money and ran, right? And they didn't keep the industries open at all. They just completely deindustrialized the place. Well, they, what was, what was know, an interesting, interesting note about that is they did so because they weren't sure that, this, that their purchases, which were far below market value, would be held up. So instead of you know, just operating them, which would have been a, a cash cow for decades to come. They, they just fucking destroyed them from the inside out. They just took all the, all the resources, they sold them all off. And essentially they destroyed Russia's entire industry within a few years. Right. 
Well, yeah, no, look, and these are people who are just swooping in, right? This guy doesn't know anything about running a nickel factory. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, he's just, you know, he's a KGB agent and he won the <laughs> secret auction that he was the only person at, you know, <laughs> right, right. you know, this kind of corrupt dealing. So, you know, they had a system of vouchers where, like, you can imagine if someone gave you the keys to a formerly communist society and now it's your chance to set the economy up, how you might try to figure out something that sounds like what they did, where they gave people vouchers that essentially were shares of stock in the companies. But then, they just didn't recognize those shares of being of any value. They just issued different shares and then they recognize those of being value and whatever. So, and, and, and people are sitting on shares of stock that are essentially worthless now. Maybe they'll be worth something in a few years, but right now they're worthless. So they'll sell them for pennies on the dollar just well, for and, and they're hungry. You and know, they're hungry, yeah, so they got to sell them. Yeah. And look, millions of people, there were literally millions of excess deaths. So when you think about a, a communist country, going from the government owning everything and all the knowledge problems and calculation problems and just nefarious, ill-intentioned police state problems of the Soviet Union. And then replacing that with American-style capitalism and six million people starve to death or drink themselves to death. Yeah, it's terrible, man. Right, and, and it, just real, total real, destruction of their society. Quick question for you. The, you. You refer to them as the Harvard boys and Larry Summers. Uh, was it... Goldman Sachs, do you know what businesses were actually involved in it? Or was this like government or like academia officials that were all involved? Yeah, I, I don't know that. Well, I mean, I know that the Bank of New York, there's a huge scandal of the Bank of New York laundering a bunch of this money. Oh, back. interesting. Okay. I have to admit to you that I have not like followed those trails to see like how much of that was at Citigroup and at Chase and at Goldman and this and that back right, during right. that era. Um, that, that would be a, a, interesting to know. Just the, the reason I ask is because I, I want to know how much of this is laid at the feet of, you know, corporate vultures versus state sponsored vultures. Yeah, I mean, look, I think part of this is, again, like they don't know what's right. So they say lift your price controls, but they're lifting price controls right when the money supply is vastly being increased and right when the economy is falling apart and and yeah. prices otherwise would be falling and well so that, that sounds a lot like america today scott inflation. i'm sorry that sounds a lot like america today scott yeah well but no 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 like <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of percent inflation so no, imagine I know, that. I know. think about think about all those american towns out there with all those you know, business owners, just take the small business owners of America, you know, the low level millionaires of America, for example, who have all those assets denominated in dollars, all those savings denominated in dollars. And then all that's just turned to vapor. That just becomes nothing. Be, all, your million dollars is now worth a fraction of a penny. That's yeah, horrible. So the only people who have capital at all are the people who are the most directly connected to the national government or to foreign banks and, and have access to foreign currencies come right. in and buy up everything from everyone else. And everyone else is just completely destitute and, and gets completely robbed. And then, you know, it happened again and again. They did it, you know, it was the hyperinflation 93 or 92, which led to then the attempted um, – was I don't I don't know if I know the details well enough to to rehearse it's all in the book there um but where the legislature which was dominated by communists and right-wing nationalists was refusing to go along with Putin with Yeltsin's program yep. so he attacked them 
And it's the parliament building is called the Russian White House, not their executive, but their their legislative building. He attacked me, killed like 37 people, I think it was, mm-hmm. and then dismantled the current that parliament, destroyed that parliament entirely and created the Duma in its place. Or, you know, create a brand new parliamentary system in its well, place. What I thought was interesting about that what what I thought was interesting about that is um, the way you fra- framed it was that essentially Yeltsin went along with these IMF loans because of he was his attempts to be reelected. It, it was that was it as simple as that that he just he just needed well, right, to. That was the next step, right? Was okay. um, so then he had the election of 1996 and he was going to lose. And now conventional wisdom is the only other candidate who had a chance was the communist. But I don't think that that's true. The Cox Committee report from the 1990s on all this corruption uh, talks about the different parties in the parliament and how there were alternatives who, you know, had a, more of an idealistic uh, program in mind than Yeltsin's just basic corruption. They called it the family, right? Just like the mafia, all Yeltsin's guys. Right. And then there's, there's a Jeff Goldblum movie about this called Spinning Boris, and it's pretty famous, the Time Magazine cover, Yanks to the Rescue, where the Clintons spent a couple, first of all, they, through the IMF, they injected $3 billion, I think it was, or $4 billion directly into the Russian economy, to which Yeltsin, of course, handed out to all of his friends to buy up votes and all of that. And then they did you know, it was almost like a color-coded revolution type of a situation in a way where they send in these foreign experts to do this in-depth polling and focus groups and, you know, strategic planning and all that. So it's, it's you know, America's, you know, highest quality uh, campaign management type people sent. Thank, thank you for putting it. Totally un, uneven playing field for the sitting president. Right, and well, th- millions of dollars. I just want to say thank you for uh, for framing it that way for the for the sake of me publishing this on YouTube. Um, yeah, I, I I think I think everyone knows what we're saying, but it, essentially, it's uh, you know it's reinforcements. It's it's helping. It's just helping. Well, look, and he would have lost. I mean, yeah. they rigged the election for him because they had to. <laughs> Damn it, Scott! And- you're not supposed to say that word. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I. I'm talking about 1996 YouTube algorithm bot. It was on the cover of Time magazine. You can read all about it. Your dumb algorithm, your God that controls our lives uh, for some reason. Uh, I love it. I love it. But so, yeah, so Bill Clinton helped inflict Boris Yeltsin on the people of Russia when they were trying to get rid of him in the name of democracy, right? In the name of, of course. you know, America having, America having their way. But see, also, uh, fought against the Serbs, took the side against the Serbs in the war in Bosnia and in the Kosovo war, which, uh, you know, was also against the Serbs. And those are Russia's very close uh, friends, the Western Slavs and their close allies, and which was over Yeltsin's dead body and Russia's dead body, but they couldn't do anything about that. And in both those cases, in Bosnia and in Kosovo, they backed the Mujahideen, including bin Ladenites and including... The ringleader of the September 11th attack, Ramzi Youssef's uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the lead planner, and two of the hijackers, Midhar and Hazmi, the guys who 
famously are in the news this week and last week that the CIA followed from Malaysia to Bangkok to Los Angeles and knew we're in the country for 18 months before they, not a missile, you idiots, they <laughs> crashed Flight 77 into the Pentagon. Don't you love how the 9-11 truthers are the ones who aided and abetted these guys as bad as the FBI and the CIA for 20 years? Yeah, man. It was Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon. It was full of a couple of guys that the CIA refused to tell the FBI about. Incredible. And they had both earned their terrorist stripes, Clint, fighting for Bill Clinton's side in the war in Bosnia. Amazing. And that was why they were taken seriously as Al-Qaeda terrorists and welcomed into the club by bin Laden. What, what was I, I, this is a, a major detour, but let's try and keep it brief. These these tourists, or these terrorists rather, that were recruited by the CIA and not disclosed to the FBI. Do you, does that tell us enough to make any conclusion about the inside job narrative? Oh, yeah, no, it does not tell us enough to to justify okay. that at all. I mean, I think the much clearer narrative there is that the cia was trying to recruit them and failed to recruit them and then instead of saying boy you cops better roll these guys up because we sure blew our stupid spy operation that didn't work out they sort of walked away with their hands in their pockets whistling <laughs> and hoping everything was going to work out uh and then <laughs> that, did. that didn't work out actually no it did not and it, because Jesus. look the alex station was run by these female analysts I'm not picking on them, these women analysts who they weren't spies and they were not the director of operations. They didn't know the first thing about recruiting double agent this and that. Mm -hmm. I guess they were hoping the Saudis could flip them for them. And then, I mean, you got Prince Bandar's wife cutting the check to them. I right. would think, look, I'm against enhanced interrogation in principle, but like if we were to maybe waterboard Prince Bandar and Prince Turkey Al Faisal and ask them, like, which one of you is most responsible for this and get them, like, you know, squealing and point fingers at each other and pointing fingers at Dick Cheney or whatever? I'd be willing to maybe for one day. Could we do that for one day? <laughs> Metaphorically, uh, hypothetically. Yeah, uh, but only only because they're the ambassador to the United States and the head of intelligence there. And, you know, um, but look, I... It would be interesting to know. That's for to sure. To tell you the truth, man, honestly, you know, people, there are so many like very straw man versions of September 11th. And I have to tell you, I never even read the commission report because I don't really think that's the point. But I do know of it. And I do know that the official story is that the FBI and the CIA hated each other's guts and refused to share information with each other to the detriment of the security of the American people. And I would say that James Bamford's book, you could with uh, his book, The Shadow Factory, that you add the NSA to that too. Mm -hmm. And I know, like, from interviewing Michael Scheuer, that he hate. In fact, there's a great clip. I don't know if you've ever seen this. You could find this very easily of Michael Scheuer testifying to Congress about how much he hated John O'Neill, the head of FBI counterterrorism. And he tells the congressman, he says, that's right, sir. And I also said that when that tower came down on John O'Neill's head that day, that that was the only good thing that happened to America on 11 September, mm. right? Because the FBI, all they wanted to do was take all the information and lock it up behind the grand jury. And all the CIA wanted to do was kill the FBI, take that information and kill some FBI, uh, some Al-Qaeda guys with it, you know? And so... There was this uh, massive tension there. And then, you know, as Scheuer told me that 
and and this is in Bamford's book, that they couldn't get anything from the NSA. The CIA nor the FBI could get anything from the NSA. They just hoarded every little bit they had, which is everything, right? So as as Scheuer put it to me years ago, and he, by the way, became a very right-wing kook and like, I don't know, but back in the W. Bush years, he's a much more reasonable guy. Anyway, he told the story of, as he put it, George Tenet's moral failure. For those who aren't familiar, we now have a director of national intelligence. Back then, the director of the CIA was also the director of central intelligence, which meant that he was also the boss over the NSA and the National Reconnaissance Office and all of the various intelligence agencies was his job too, right? So he was nominally at least the boss over the NSA. And yet, according to Scheuer, he didn't have the moral courage to just walk over there and say, give me the damn files. Hmm. And he wouldn't, he just wouldn't do it. But meanwhile, so here's the thing. The CIA, the CIA wants to tap the Yemen switchboard house where Hani Hanjour, I believe is Hani Hanjour's father-in-law, is taking phone calls between Afghanistan and Western Europe and the United States, giving people their instructions and what have you. And the CIA, and I, I guess probably the FBI, but definitely the yeah, must have been the FBI too. They want these intercepts from the NSA and the NSA won't give them. So the CIA, I don't know how much it costs them, but I guess it's nothing to them. They built their own listening station on Madagascar. Remember that from Risk, the giant island off of the Southeast coast? Of <laughs> yes, Africa? yes, yes. Okay. They built their own listening station on Madagascar, but they could only get half the conversation. They could only get what the Yemenis were saying, but they couldn't get what was being said by the Afghans or by, you know, the other operatives in Western Europe or in America that they were talking to. Wow. And so to the CIA guys, they're completely pulling their hair out, going crazy. And the NSA are just being jerks. And basically, like, these guys are all a bunch of meathead cops. I mean, what do you expect? Now, it's fair. I Believe me. And, well, you don't have to believe me, but it is true. I was a 9-11 truther long before it happened. Years before it happened, I said, there's, they're going to let there be a massive terrorist attack. They're going to use it as an excuse to attack Iraq. They're going to blame it on that bin Laden guy, blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm -hmm. But as I just mentioned, like with the missile that hit the Pentagon, a lot of this 9-11 truther stuff is a bunch of stupid crap that only a stupid effing idiot could possibly <laughs> believe in. Yeah, like Donald Rumsfeld shot a missile at a building that he was in at the time. <laughs> right, yeah, you're right. really smart. Well, hey, real real quick, the these uh, these wiretaps that, that you're you're referencing was that in the weeks prior to nine eleven? Well, even in the entire era leading up to it, yeah. I mean, okay. the okay. year leading up to it or more. Uh, the book is The Shadow Factory by Bamford, and he's the same guy that wrote Puzzle Palace and Body of Secrets. He's the guy that broke the story about the USS Liberty, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, I need he's to read those. the guy. He's the best intelligence reporter in America by far. Awesome. Um, and he also wrote a pretext for war about how the neoconservatives lied us into war with Iraq for Israel, the mm. traitors. Um, <laughs> but uh, so anyways, um, I forgot where I was. With well, that. Well, here, let me let me say something real Go quick, because I, I think what it, it, it presents an interesting quandary for from a libertarian perspective in that essentially what we're describing is problems with information sharing that comes from a decentralization process within these tyrannical deep state uh you know government organizations uh, obviously you know my answer would be to abolish them but uh is it if they're going to exist would it actually be to the benefit of the american people to have them back in the control of just the cia director being the 
overseer of NSA and all this stuff? Well, first of all, I agree with you on just abolishing them all. Yes, of course. Uh, but but secondly, um, look, I you know I don't know what to tell you, man. I mean, frankly, like I just don't respect cops or spies or these types of people at all. I mean, they're they're all a bunch of truthers themselves, right? Listen to a cop tell you how he solved the murder, and it's like, dude, you're just a conspiracy nut. Like you got. <laughs> You got nothing, man. And you're going, it all fits. It all fits. You got something that looks like it might be a palm print. You got a hair that looks like it could be similar. But the guy's got an alibi. And like, what are you talking about? Right? We see this all the time. Right? So I just, you know, it, there, it wasn't the law that the FBI and the CIA and the NSA were not allowed to share this kind of information with each other. Okay. Right. Like you could say for able danger that maybe there was a question of whether the military could share this information directly with the FBI. But quite frankly, I think that could have been worked out in an interagency meeting. You know what I mean? They say that like, oh, there's something like this iron wall that was mostly inflicted by the personalities of the people yeah. in charge. It was, it was an than, ego barricade yeah. more than a real one. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, again, John O'Neill, the head of FBI counterterrorism, and Michael Shore, the head of CIA counterterrorism, absolutely hated each other and wanted to murder each other. And when the wow. fucking tower fell on one of their's head, the other one danced on it. That's crazy. That's so okay? crazy. Because when he got fired, he got ran out of there. He went and got a job as the head of security because he knew an attack was coming. He went to get a job as the head of security at the World Trade Center. And look. Wait, wait, who? Oh, I wanted to say, I know where I got lost. And this is an important point. Look, anyone who's already bought the truth or narrative here, if you want to. And, and most of this is like question begging, start with your conclusion kind of stuff. But sure. whatever. If that's your case, then what I say sounds here very much like a limited hangout. And I'm just saying, all I'm saying is that's even the official story. The official story is if we'd done our job, there's no way they could have done that attack, right? If, if they let Colleen Rowley search Musawi's computer, they could have rolled up the crew in Hollywood, Florida in a day and a half, right? If they'd listened to Ken Williams in Phoenix, they could have rolled these guys up months before. If, if Scheuer and O'Neill could have ever sat down and had drinks and gotten along for a minute, they might have solved this problem, right? Like, that's even the official story. That doesn't make them look very good to me. No. And that, to me, is 3,000 counts of criminally negligent homicide, and I wouldn't mind seeing a few people hang for it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I mean, that was a long time ago, but at the same time— After a fair really trial. And I remember what a big deal it was then. And it ain't hard for me to remember what a big deal it really was. Hell when yeah. It happened. And it's, it's huge. And for this to happen on the watch of W. Bush, his national security principles on his cabinet, the directors of justice and FBI and CIA and NSA and all those 17 agencies, all the members of the National uh, Intelligence Council, all of them should have immediately been fired and put under criminal investigation to see if we're going to have negligent homicide charges here against all these guys. Agreed. Go for like down to deputy secretary of defense level on, or deputy secretary level on all of the principal foreign policy, police and spy agencies. And then you want to talk about truthers. Let's listen to these guys scream point fingers at each other 
for whose fault it is, right? Like I'm saying, Prince Bandar, how could you do this to me? And then poke him with a really hot stick a few <laughs> times in the ribs and see if you can get him to say, well, actually, Dick Cheney told me to do it. And then, we'll, and then we'll have an investigation. Then we might know. Well, hey, I'm well, including the possibility. I'm just saying, let's not jump to conclusions here. Of let's course, of course. No, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. But who who was it that got the job of security at the World Trade Center? Because he knew John O'Neill, the head of the FBI counterterrorism office in New York. He got ran out of there because he was corrupt. That's crazy. And and, and then he went, but he was obsessed with Al Qaeda, and he did want to stop Al Qaeda from killing New Yorkers. Okay, so he was there not to watch it, but to try and no, he was there to yeah, he was there because he knew something bad was going to happen, and he was going to try to be a hero, and he died that day. I'm sure that's, trying to save people. You that's know? incredible, man. What yeah. a story. I don't think I've ever heard that. That's yeah, amazing. there's a, a PBS frontline all about it, in fact, where they talk about um, Bojinka. If, if you're familiar with this, and we're way off on a tangent. I don't know how much time you got. <laughs> I ate a couple of gummies before this. I wasn't sure how high I was going to get. <laughs> I love there's it. It's, it's my favorite. Talk about Ramsey Youssef after he blew up the World Trade Center. Now, well, let's go back to that. Everybody knows. They had an informant inside the World Trade Center plot who was going to make a fake bomb, but they pulled the informant. Then the real bomb maker came in, Ramsey Youssef, made a real bomb and almost succeeded in knocking one tower over into the other, breaking it at the bottom and having it fall over sideways, hit the other tower and knock them both over. And we're talking four in the afternoon, 20,000 dead immediately kind of right away. 1993, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. 1993, right? 93, right. Two days yeah. before the first, the Waco raid, which is why everybody forgot about it because then the Waco siege broke out and it was put away. But don't wow. get me started on that now. No, we're not going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> In fact, ask me at the end of the interview about that. I got one thing to say. Okay, okay. Um, but so the guy that cooked that bomb fled and got away to the Philippines and but then there was a fire at his apartment and he escaped, but his buddy got caught with the laptop that had all their plans on it. And they had plans on there to kill Bill Clinton, to kill the Pope, to blow up planes over the Pacific. That was Bojinka and wow. uh, with time bombs. And they did a test. They killed a Japanese businessman with a test time bomb that Youssef had put under the seat of a Pacific Airways plane Incredible. trying to blow up that center fuel tank, which is what happened with Flight 800 and was an interesting thing when Flight 800 blew up. And I don't know. But anyway. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I'm sorry. Where's, where's Flight 800? Flight 800 took off from New York on its way to Paris, France. It was blown up in 98, I'm going to say. And wow. then the question was, one theory even was that someone in Al-Qaeda did it to cast reasonable doubt on Ramsey Youssef, who was on trial at that time, and Holy say, shit. well, how could it have been Ramsey Youssef if obviously the bomber's on the loose? But wow. then the other theory was, no, the Navy shot it down with a missile in a exercise that went off track and hit a civilian airliner. And then hmm. there was eyewitness testimony that said that they thought it was a a shoulder-fired surface-to-air missile from the beach from Long Island, I think it was, um, wiggle room there. So, And who knows? I, I, I really don't know even what to believe about what happened to that plane. But anyway, then there was one more plot on the laptop after assassinating the Pope and the president and the time bomb operation was multiple hijackings, 10 planes, 10 targets on both coasts. And then Khalid Sheikh Mohammed the guy who was 
Yusef's uncle and who ended up being the ringleader of 9-11, you know, eight years later, he would get on a loudspeaker and, you know, or get on the radio and demand that uh, the Israelis pull out of the West Bank and, you know, America pull out of Iraq and and pull out of Saudi Arabia, I mean to say, and the no-fly zone bombings over Iraq and all that. And so that was, so the FBI, the, the Philippine police gave all this to the FBI in 1995. So they knew about a potential plane operation like that as early as then. And it's the same guy who had bombed us before. It was the uncle of the guy who had bombed us before. Incredible. Yeah. Well, and let's, let's. Working for, look, why were they allowed in the country? They were allowed in the country. The state department was like, no, you can't get in the country. You're Islamic Jihad terrorists. And the CIA intervened and said, no, we know these guys. They're our friends. We backed them as Mujahideen in the war in Afghanistan. So it's all good. But so it was what, what, line Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the, the, the co-leader of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which was Zawahiri's group, which he ended up merging with bin Laden's group to make Al-Qaeda. These yeah. are the most dangerous anti-American terrorists in the world. And the CIA are like, yeah, but they're our friends, which but was the, true. See, I, got, I have you know, to... I have to connect the dot there and ask the question. I mean, why are they bringing them into America if not for nefarious purposes? I don't know. Maybe to recruit, help recruit people to send to Chechnya, which is where <laughs> I got off on this tangent, right? Okay. <laughs> back to he, Bill Clinton, even as these guys were bombing us and they first started, the first attack was a thwarted attempt at the Radisson in Yemen in 92, right? Then they did the first World Trade Center bombing. They did. They killed some Americans at a National Guard training facility in Saudi in 95. They did the Kobar Towers in 96, which Clinton blamed on Iran because that's what Saudi is insisted. He blamed it on Hezbollah instead of blaming it on al-Qaeda there. Um, and then they did the Africa embassy attacks in the summer 98, the coal attack in uh, the fall of 2000. And all during this time, Bill Clinton's backing them in Bosnia, in Kosovo, and Bosnia is 95, 94, 95. Kosovo, 1999, and in Chechnya, 99 through 2000, man. And and believe uh, you've seen it in the book, but for your audience, well, tell them, Clint, I demonstrate that Bill Clinton backed the terrorists in Chechnya. Oh, yeah. And, and, and clearly. Yeah. It was, it was basically like the first. In earlier books, I assert it with footnotes, but here I got, uh, I prove it for you. Yeah, no. And, and it, I mean, um, this was this was like kind of the, for me at least like the first obvious trial run of using islamic extremism well i guess it's not the first because you have the in russia or in uh in afghanistan you mm-hmm. kind of use islamic extremists as well but the, it just seems like this is a consistent pattern that the cia uh, or the state department or both in tandem utilize extremist muslims to commit atrocities and, and basically just stir up shit wherever they want in the world yeah well in fact no ever since you know the end of the second world war this was the british policy and mm-hmm. America inherited it from them. If you really want to dig into this, man, it's, you know, probably the ultimate prequel to my book would be Devil's Game okay. by uh, uh, Robert Dreyfus. Okay. And uh, not Richard Dreyfus. I hate him, man. Bugs <laughs> the hell out of me. Robert Dreyfus. He's great. And and that book will blow your socks off, man. It's, it's, it's Devil's Game, how the United States helped unleash fundamentalist Islam. And what he means by that is the British started it and we inherited the policy from them. And we've been working with our Saudi friends all along to do it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the real precursor to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 80s was the Safari Club in Africa, 
where, you know, the after the church committee hearings and stuff, where there was some rollback of the CIA's powers, they just went to the Saudis and said, will you bankroll it all for us? And so they said, yeah, sure. So it was basically anti-communist groups, you know, supporting anti-communist groups in Africa. Quick, quick question for you. Uh, what's the, what is the, um, God, where was I going with this? I had so many questions I'm thinking on the fly. Um, oh, oh, yes. Okay. So Putin and Yeltsin both ask periodically of both Clinton and Bush Jr. What about adding us to NATO? Were they ever serious about that? Yes. Yes, of course. Okay. And, and I thought so. And there were Americans who said, if we're going to bring them into NATO, then. Why do we need NATO? Yeah, or well, there's that, but there's, or if we're going to bring Eastern Europe into NATO, we should bring Russia in first. I, I believe this is what Perry said. So we mm. should bring Russia in now, and then we'll bring in the states between Germany and Russia. That way, it's not an anti-Russia thing, because even if we we somehow like say that someday we'll bring Russia in, but we're going to work our way steadily eastward. That's not going to look like it to them. It's yeah. going to look like a threat to them. We're going to be redividing Europe all this time. Um, oh, and let me just say one more last thing about back in the terrace in Chechnya here. I mentioned about, and I'm sorry, get me back on track with NATO expansion in just a second here. But, sure. um, I mentioned about how um, if Colleen Rowley and her group of FBI agents in Minnesota have been allowed to do their job, that they would have stopped September 11th. And we know that that's true. It's virtually certain, as, as certain as an alternative history can be, okay? Mm -hmm. Because when they were finally allowed to crack his computer open on September 11th, after it was too late, they found information in his laptop that directed them straight to the group in Florida that was the core of the hijackers, Mohammed Atta and the other lead pilot hijackers from the Hamburg cell. Mm -hmm. So they would have all been wrapped up. That would have been it. Or they'd have been at least taken in for questioning and been under sure. FBI watch and whatever. Would have, wouldn't happen that day for sure. That's right. The plot would have been, you know, foiled at that point. Um, but they weren't allowed to look at his laptop. And the thing is about it, so people aren't familiar, you know, I know there's, this is the future now and a lot of uh, younger people don't know this stuff. This is the guy who wanted to learn how to fly a jumbo jet, but he didn't want to know how to take off or land it. He didn't have time for that BS. He just wanted to know how to fly the thing. And so one of the FBI agents had even speculated that, look, man, this guy could hijack a plane from Heathrow and crash it right into the World Trade Center. We got to stop it. Okay. So now here's the thing. They contacted French intelligence because he had a French passport and all this. Mm -hmm. And French intelligence said, yes, listen, this guy and his brother both helped recruit terrorists to go fight in Chechnya. Oh, my God. He's tied to Al-Khattab, the leader of Al-Qaeda in Chechnya. And the FBI supervisors said, oh, well, we like the terrorists in Chechnya. Mm -hmm. so now... If you're familiar with the Fourth Amendment, it says they need probable cause to believe that if they tap your phone or search your house, that they will find evidence of a crime that they're investigating. Okay. Mm -hmm. But under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply if the government claims reasonable belief 
that you are an agent of a foreign power or a foreign terrorist group, in which case that's all they need to tap your phone. They don't have to even have a belief of what you might be up to and that it might be against American interests. Their only obligation is to show that there is a reasonable belief that you are acting as an agent of a foreign power or a foreign terrorist group, and they can tap your phone, they can look at your computer, they can do whatever they want. It's right. called a FISA warrant, and they won 99.999% of the time. They get a rubber stamp. So the Minnesota... A Minneapolis, Minnesota FBI wanted to go to the FISA court and their supervisors in Washington wouldn't let them do it because, Chechnya. you know, you say that Katab is friends with bin Laden, but we don't think he is because we don't want to think he is. So that makes our, our other agency friends look bad. So, so essentially 9-11 happens because we are we have relationships with a bunch of shady motherfuckers that are doing crazy shit for us all yeah. over the world. So we just ignore it intentionally. And look, I mean, honestly, is, is that a fair synopsis? Yeah. I, I got to tell you, dude, you know, I really was a uh, conspiracy theorist then. And I did predict 9-11 before it happened. Um, but I really got very disabused of the conspiracy stuff right at that same time because for one thing, there's all this very good journalism coming in from hundreds of different journalists, or at least, you know, dozens of great ones right. all around the world who really know a lot about this stuff, who are obviously not all CIA plants right. and who, you know, explain that these human men have their own thoughts and their own interests and their own responsibility and their own, you know, motivations for the things that they do. And not every damn thing in the world is controlled by the CIA. And so, you know, why not just wait and see? Wait, instead of concluding first, even if I predicted it, let's wait and see what all the evidence is. Now, as at the time that I'm learning all of like who's really behind this thing and and what their interests are, and yes, the role of the CIA in backing them and not backing them here, there, and wherever. At the same time, the truthers are making up this absolute nonsense about missiles hitting the Pentagon and fake phone calls home to mom that are computer generated with AI F stuff. Fake that, planes you know, and everything, yeah. All, all this crap, dude. Just every every single claim and loose change is but wrong. I, I feel like... Right in all four versions of that movie is the date of the attack. And they <laughs> but, contradict but, themselves 100% from movie to movie to movie to movie, and they're still wrong about every goddamn thing. Feel, I feel like I'm giving the most benign explanation is that because we are using these guys, these these types of you know Islamic extremists to you know basically stir up shit to cause problems in neighboring territories for our enemies, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, that that then we turn a blind eye because they are we view them as our allies. Like, hey, we train these guys. Hey, we arm these guys. Hey, they've done they've done our bidding. So obviously they're yeah. not going to attack us. Is that is that a, a fair enough? Like, because yeah, it seems like well, a benign answer. That's what I think. I mean, that's exactly okay. what I think is that. You know, if you're some arrogant prick that works at the State Department, you or at the CIA, you go look, man. I mean, these guys owe us one. <laughs> you know how many stingers I've given these guys? Yeah, they, they and, and, do and I swear this is true, dude. And, and I'm finding more and more of this, and especially researching the Bosnia thing. Um, I'm finding all these quotes. Man, I hope I didn't skip this. I hope I put this in there. I might have skipped this, and maybe I need to go back and find this. Um, I might have omitted this, ma'am. It's something I read a couple of different times. 
was after Iraq War One, which we know really upset our Mujahideen friends, we owe them one. Mm. So that's why we're going to back them in Bosnia. Is we kind of like in order to placate our Mujahideen mercenary friends that we've cultivated here, we're going to help <laughs> them this time. And oh. so then, and I do have the quotes in, um, in uh, enough already, and in Fool's Aaron, in Fool's Aaron, I have the footnotes there for it, but anyone can find this very easily. Where Bill Clinton, Tom Lantos, and Brad Sherman, uh, both Democratic congressmen there. All three said something very close to the effect of, I can't believe that these Muslims would attack us after everything that we've done for them lately. Right. You know, so Oops. they believe that they bribed these guys off. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. You know, but but look, you know, back to Michael Scheuer. Michael Scheuer goes, look, man, bin Laden said over and over and over again, he was mad because one, bases in Saudi being used to bomb Iraq. American support for Israel against the Lebanese and the Palestinians. American support for the kingdoms, potentates, and dictatorships of the Middle East. Pressure on them to rig oil prices artificially low to subsidize our economy at their people's expense. And turning a blind eye to Russia, China, India, and Kazakhstan and their oppression of Muslims and Muslim groups. So none of that went away. The fact that we supported them in Bosnia and Kosovo and Chechnya didn't mean that they were now loyal to the United States. It doesn't, doesn't offset everything else. I, I, I mean, also, wasn't it the uh, the trade embargoes on, on Iraq? That yes, exactly. Enforcing yeah. the blockade and the no-fly zones from yeah. those bases in Saudi. You know, that's sort of the two-for-one there. Okay. okay. You know, the Iraq policy enforced from bases on the Holy Arabian Peninsula, right? So yeah. um, it wasn't radical religion. It was radical politics. And it was... And and it was the kind of the kind of policies. If you look at you know Palestine and and what we're just talking about there with the bases in Saudi being used to bomb and enforce this blockade against Iraq, this is the kind of thing where you could have backed them in ten Chechnyas, and it wasn't going to bribe them into forgiving or forgetting what was mm. going on there. You know, um, was was there? I, I think I think if I recall correctly from your book, it, it was largely about. Uh, pipelines in Chechnya is was the American benefit to to doing that or no? That's right. I mean, they have their own pipeline going the other way, and they wanted to prevent basically the reactivation of this old Soviet pipeline that cut through the Caucasus there. And, and that so, that was to circumvent Ukraine. Uh, no, it was just to circumvent. In that case, I guess Georgia. Not that they'd be getting the. It was to circumvent Russia. I mean, it okay. was to, yeah, it was to, to, so. No, no, sorry. I meant, I meant the, it was for Russia to circumvent Ukraine in terms of pipeline. Uh, oh, but I, I don't know the geography well enough. Yeah, to... No, no, no. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, it may, their plan may well have been to take that gas and then pump it West into Europe through Ukraine for all I know. Okay, sure. But, it, you know, basically the great game, what we're talking about here is this small territory North of Iran you have Armenia and Azerbaijan, and the north of that you have Georgia. And this is the space between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And then there's the Caucasus Mountains, and the north of the Caucasus Mountains is Russia, including Chechnya and Dagestan. 
and all that area. So what the Americans, first of all, they overestimated how much oil and gas was there and how what a big bonanza they had found, but it was still quite a bit. And now the Soviet Union used to rule all, all the way down into Azerbaijan, uh, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, I'm trying to Good. say, um, and then left, right? And so now the Americans get to come in there. I mean, James Baker was chopping his lips, uh, chop, you know, what is it? Uh, Smacking his lips. His lips uh, chomping at the bit from 1990, right? But like a year and a half before the Soviet Union was gone, he was all ready mm. to move right in oh, there. Interesting. Okay. And then so, but it's, so it's partially, you know, just money, obviously we're talking billions of dollars, but it's also, and, and primarily it's a matter of being bad sports, right? Kicking the Russians while they're down. As long as they're down and out of the way, we come in and we build, we put, stick all our soda straws into that territory and, you know, move it mostly west into Turkey. Um, and because, you know, the, and I talk about in the book how the obvious route is to go south into Iran and straight to the Persian Gulf, but the Israel lobby forbid that. <laughs> Not allowed to go through Iran. Okay. And so then they go, well, we would like to go this way or that way. And then the Pentagon comes in or the State Department comes in and says, nope, you're going to go from Baku, Azerbaijan, through uh, Tbilisi, Georgia, and then to Jayan, Turkey, the BTC pipeline. And then from there, you'll, you'll uh, you know, transport out to the from the Mediterranean. A, a, very, a very peaceful terrain to build a pipeline through, right? Yeah, well, and the and uh, 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 you know, I'm not exactly sure the topography, but I know that the oil companies said, yeah, but that's going to cost ten times as much, and we don't right. want to spend ten times as much. Don't and the State Department, the yeah, but we insist yeah. because this is more about screwing the Russians than it is making money for you, and you'll make your money. So shut right, up. Right, right, and right. And so they did. It's Justin called it the pipeline from hell. Romando called it the pipeline from hell the BTC pipeline there. Yeah. Um, and this is part of this is why Bill Clinton backed the Taliban. The rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan in 1996 was because, and he didn't want a peace settlement either in the Civil War. He wanted a total Afghan victory for a total Taliban victory for Afghanistan so that they could guarantee the security of a pipeline from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan and I guess through the mountains they imagined <laughs> and to the port of Karachi in Pakistan. Crazy, man. Which is just bananas to think yeah. you would ever have the security situation in Afghanistan, the size <laughs> of Texas, this country, again, by the way, um, to, to have a pipeline run through there. But that was why they supported the rise of the Taliban. And as I quote in Fool's Errand, Sheila Heslin from Clinton's National Security Council told Congress that, yeah, this is to, you know, diversify our sources of supply and for us and our allies, of course, but it's also to take it away from the Russians. Mm -hmm. Make sure if anybody's getting, you know, gas from Turkmenistan, it's us and not them. And what, 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 I, what, what I thought was interesting, um, and I had never known of this geopolitical thesis that like the gravest threat to the the west unipolar moment was that if germany were to get back on its feet and be militarized and the russians and their natural resources paired with the german industry that alliance was was what they wanted to disconnect and i think right. i mean we could fast forward all the way to nord stream but let's let's keep it uh back in the you know 2000s at least um mm -hmm. Is that was that kind of the the driving thesis behind all of this? Is that we yes. have to keep we have to keep Russia down because otherwise they'll they'll they come together Germany. with Germany. Uh huh. I mean, look, this is um, 
uh, Lord Ishay, I believe is his name, the British Lord Ishay said that the purpose of NATO is to keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Soviets out. Right. Right. So in other words, as long as America is the dominant force in Germany, we can prevent them from making that alliance with the Soviet or with the Russians. And then which would include, of course, their joint dominion over all the nations between them and their ability to exclude those nations from trade with the West, primarily America and Britain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is as um, George Friedman of Stratfor put it in an interview, or I guess this was in a speech that he gave. He said, this is the primordial fear of the Americans and for that matter, the Brits. And this really all goes back to Halford Mackinder, this British imperialist of the 19th century, who said, well, look, we're a naval power. How are we gonna control the world island that is Eurasia? And uh, how are we going to prevent others? If we can't dominate it, how can we at least prevent any other major power or group of powers from dominating the world island and excluding us? But the whole thing is stupid anyway. I mean, you could write a book and call that fool's errand just on this concept, right? That anyone, the Russians or the Chinese or the Mongols or anyone else can rule all of Eurasia. The whole thing is stupid. Well, nope. let, let's go Let's go back to your reference to Madagascar and the game of risk. The dumbest thing you can do is try and take Asia in early game. You can't do it. It's impossible to hold. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you do get seven. Hold. You do get yeah. a seven seven additional armies at the beginning of each turn, but still, it's not prudent. Uh, no, right. I agree with you. I, I mean, I think it's Brzezinski, right? Brzezinski is just the 20th century version of Halford Mackinder. <laughs> and he says, you know, that um, Ukraine is the strategic pivot that we have to control in order to control Afghanistan. And, and we have to control Afghanistan to keep Central Asia from me, but it's like, I they must not know what they're talking about. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? What the fuck does Ukraine have to do with <laughs> Afghanistan? There's, look, there's, I, I got the map right here. There's an entire Turkmenistan and Caspian Sea and Georgia and, you know, Azerbaijan and all of that and the Black Sea before you get to Ukraine. Right. You know? It's just, and and then look at all the time that we did rule Afghanistan. Did that give us dominion over all the other Central Asian states and not, Russia not and exactly. China and India and the rest? No. Yeah. What are they even talking about? <laughs> they don't even make any sense. What are we? We're gonna like, um, we're gonna build airstrips there and station hydrogen bombs in Afghanistan. That wouldn't give us an advantage in terms of quick strike any better than having a submarine in the Baltic. If you want to nuke Moscow, there's yeah. still no advantage there. Now, the whole thing is just completely stupid, man. It's, it's a self-licking ice cream cone. It's a Imperialism is a government program. Yeah. It's just in search of a justification. There's well, no reason to think that if America gives up world hegemony, that even an alliance between Germany and Russia means that just screw everybody else from now on, and they are now going to rule the whole world and lord it over everyone, and we'll have to cower at their feet and all of these things. Certainly not here in North America, but there's not even any reason to think that, what, they're going to turn on the French and the British and have a giant war? 
or they're going to forbid the Brits from selling to Czechs anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, come on, man. This whole well, thing is retarded. Here's, here's the thing that I find interesting, though, because from, from my understanding, the Germans had already withdrawn from any sort of, uh, you know, Nord Stream uh, agreement as soon as, as Russia invaded Ukraine. Why blow up Nord Stream? Well, be, I guess the the Biden, well, we're skipping ahead here. We got to go back, but and it's yeah, my will. fault because I'm taking too long. But <laughs> the thinking was that, look, winter's coming. That's mm -hmm. what Hirsch's sources told him. Winter's coming. The Germans might change their mind. Yeah, they'll get weak in the and knees and we'll, the we'll back cave. On. Yeah, right. and we're just going to not give them that opportunity. You know? All right, well, let's let's go backwards a couple decades here. Um, w. Was, Bush. Let me pick on W. Bush. Yeah, go for it. So, first of all, he brings nine new nations into NATO. Wait, let me let me make sure I did Clinton. Clinton backed all the terrorists. He did the shock therapy. He rigged the election ninety six. I know I'm forgetting a big one, dude. Um. Anyway, I'm stupid. Well, I'm sorry. As for the shock therapy, do you think that that it was a conscious decision to destroy Russia's economy? Because that that's my read of yes. it. But you, okay. Yeah. Yes. And look, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I was, I, I was making a big deal about this is the best they can do, but you know, yeah, with their, with um, their fucked up ideology, do they know any better? And I like, to me, it still seems so predatory. Like they were trying to fuck them up. That's my read. Yeah. Well, and you know, here's what you can hang your hat on is Jeffrey Sachs was one of the Harvard boys and you might know him for being good on Syria and good on Ukraine issues nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was one of them, and he quit in 1994. Oh, interesting. And, you know, resigned in disgust, essentially, and said later that he believed it was deliberate wow. what they were doing, that, that the solutions were so obvious that they thought it had to have all been, you know, that big of a deal. Um, That's disappointing. But not surprising. Oh, One last thing that I forgot about the Clinton years is oh, a yeah, great yeah. segue into W. Bush, and that is about the color-coded revolution in Serbia against Milosevic in 2000. Mm -hmm. It was called the Bulldozer Revolution, and it was completely sponsored by the National Endowment for Democracy and George Soros and so forth. And N -E -D. Go ahead. I just said the NED. That they, you see them a lot. That's exactly right. They're basically, you can read this in the Washington Post. They brag that they essentially do what the CIA used to do in secret. They do openly, and openness is its own protection. That yes. like, hey, all we're doing is pouring millions of dollars into the groups that are opposing the current regime that we don't <laughs> like in your country. You know, I don't know. What's the big deal it, about it? It's, it's remarkable. The agency of our sock puppets in the street. <laughs> their will to it's, power. It's it's remarkable because we just spent the past six years of our fucking godforsaken lives having these scumbags argue about, you know, Russian interference in our elections. And you have, you know, American interests that are funding the NED in basically like every nation that you can imagine. It's so crazy. Yeah, exactly. And and they'll say in the, the exact same people who are the worst Russiagators are the same people who, who will essentially argue that, listen, no matter how much money. America pours into a foreign government's political system. It doesn't matter because yep. the people there, why they have their opinions that they have and the <laughs> things that they do, 
Now, granted, granted, we also run uh, a few of the news stations in Ukraine, and yes, we are, you know, propagandizing the people to feel how they feel. But you know, set that aside. Seriously, and look, when they vote wrong, we just cancel their election results. <laughs> um, and and look, so this is the template. I, you know, the and I guess. I need to get better on this. I, I, this is a section of my book that's sort of unfinished here. I know from talking with Daniel McAdams, who's the real expert, that they really did this in Albania and a few different places in the 1990s. And some, some uh, succeeded and some failed sure. um, before the bulldozer revolution. But the bulldozer revolution is the big one, I think, in Serbia. And they created this group called Otpor that would you know organize the youths uh, with a lot of money to go spray painting graffiti, anti-regime graffiti everywhere and to coin the slogans. And essentially the game is, in, in the case of, of Serbia, they just won the election. In the case of, for example, the Georgia, this is really the, the, um, the, the template, the, the Ukrainian template, Romando called it, but it could be the Georgian template is, you lose the election, but then you just refuse to accept that, keep your people in the street and just say, no, 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 he cheated, he cheated, he cheated until you finally get your way kind of thing. That was and the so, orange? That was orange in Georgia? No, it was rose in Georgia, rose. orange in Ukraine in 04. Right. So Georgia right. was 03. Anyway, so this is the end of Clinton is 2000 is, is when they did Serbia. And then, so that's a good segue into W. Bush because W. Bush comes in and he continues this process of the color-coded revolutions with Georgia in 03, Ukraine in 04, and then in 05, they succeeded in Kyrgyzstan, but they failed in uh, Lebanon and in Belarus. In Lebanon, it was the Cedar Revolution. In Belarus, it was the Denim Revolution. Both of those failed. In Kyrgyzstan, it was the Tulip Revolution or the Lemon Revolution, more commonly the Tulip Revolution. And... Um, just a bunch of organic revolutions that happen one year after another. It's fascinating. That's right. Yeah. And they're just essentially they're coup d'etats dressed up as revolutions, you know, plausible deniability that, you know, they somehow was supported um, by some faction or another. And that that should be enough for you when we're talking about, especially we're talking about overthrowing democratic governments that have elections. Right. So, like the whole point of that is so that we don't have to overthrow each other. We just have an election and then that way we don't have to overthrow each other, you know? Yeah. Well, um, and the Americans, of course, always doing this in the name of democracy. In the case of W. Bush, the global democratic revolution was mm -hmm. his excuse for every bit of this, including overthrowing and remaking Iraq and the rest. Um, but but so the outcome of that democratic decision just happened to coincide with American interests almost every time. And if it didn't, well, then the protesters got a little bit more rambunctious, didn't they? I mean, it's just it's from a... If you take a global perspective of all these revolutions and you see how they all play out, it, it really does paint a very blatant picture, in my estimation, as to the amount Absolutely. of intervention. Hey, look, man, you think somebody in Pango Pango is confused about this at all? <laughs> like we have, as Americans, some kind of like compelling counter narrative for some reason that it's at least available to us that like nah we wouldn't do that or mm -hmm. our guys are always the good guys they must have meant well or they wouldn't have done it or some kind of thing but like if you're just some guy from some random third country out there this is just the american you know rampaging beast going around doing whatever the hell it wants right global rules-based international order of well, euphemisms it's you know just an empire here here's you know? the funny thing about it is that like a lot, of, I think, 
a lot of people in the State Department or, you know, DOD, like any of the people that are responsible for the military industrial rampage that we've experienced over the past, you know, 100 years, but 50, 40 years, whatever, um, they would say this is a much kinder way of, you know, our imperialist, you know, pressure has to be applied somehow. Would you rather was drone them, Scott? I mean, we're just manipulating the, the minds of their people. Hey, as long as you get to grade it on a curve and you get to draw that curve wherever you want, then it's fun. It's Bill <laughs> Marx totally Scahill. Come on, drone attacks aren't that big of a deal. After all, George Bush marched the whole army into Iraq. Yeah. Sonny's a drone strike on some guy's funeral. Nah, whatever, dude. <laughs> Who cares about that. It, it is it is really All dark, man. Scale, you know. Um, so Debbie Bush, he overthrows any government that's friendly with Russia, is what we're really talking about here. Um, and he expands NATO by nine, including the Baltic states. Oh, this is the big one from Clinton that I left out, is I didn't specify. I implied there, but I didn't specify. In 1999, three days before he launched the Kosovo War, or is it three weeks? Oh, that's right. It might have been three weeks before he launched the Kosovo War. Um, Hillary. He brought uh, Hungary... Romania and Poland into the NATO alliance. And yes, it was Hillary Clinton that made him do the Kosovo war. It was the first time she talked to him in nine months or eight months since the Lewinsky fiasco. Yep. And she wouldn't talk to him. The only thing she would say to him is you better bomb Serbia, Bill. <laughs> and if you do, then I'll talk to you again. And he was like, okay, lady, whatever. What, say, dude. what a satanic bitch she is. Oh, she's <laughs> she's the like, worst. You have to bomb people if we're going to keep our marriage together. Yeah, there's good. I got good sourcing on that, too. Y'all have to wait or Google it yourself. Yeah, um, crazy. But you'll, there's plenty on that. Um, but so, so yeah, he brought in um, uh, Poland. Hungary and the Czech Republic in 1999. Three weeks later, this defensive alliance that just expanded launched its first aggressive war without a UN resolution legalizing it or a congressional declaration of war legalizing it. Um, and they just did it because they wanted to. And um, so anyway, so then W. Bush brings nine nations into NATO, including how, sorry, the Baltic how, States. How many, how many uh, nations were brought into NATO by Clinton? Three. Three. So three and then was it seven or nine under Bush? It was nine under Bush. Okay. So now we're up to 12. <laughs> right. And then and then Obama brought in, I believe, four more and Trump two more. And Biden now one 18. more going on two more. So about 20. Finland and, we're going to be up to next. 20 nations added to NATO. This is a, this is a, you know, a promise that was made under George Bush Sr. that we would not expand one one inch eastward, and and I mean it's also allegedly a defensive alliance, which obviously that was shattered in '99. Um, when at what point does Putin? I, he must be thinking to himself throughout this. I, I, well, I guess it wasn't Putin probably in '99, but he must have been thinking as he's witnessing this because he's like on his rise at that time. Mm -hmm. Like it's clear that this is a a. Uh, you know, a provocation, uh, maybe not a, a, a an overt attack, but certainly against the the wishes and the you know the promises that we've received. So when does he? Uh, what what confuses me about this is he picks. He's the first nation, famously, he's the first national leader, world leader that calls mm -hmm. up George Bush Jr. after the nine eleven attacks and offers all sorts of help and assistance. 
was he was he holding assistance to the invasion of afghanistan Uh yes yes but was 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 that his attempt to get bush to stop the clinton policy of expanding nato do you is that your read of it like what yeah well look i mean i think throughout this the attitudes kind of evolve where essentially they're in the position they know they can't really do anything about stopping it so they're trying to accommodate it and putin himself asked to join nato Right. In July of 2001. And Colin Powell just didn't even answer. I mean, he just didn't even dignify that with a response. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, as you can tell, Scott has a lot to say about this topic, as do I at this point. And uh, I'm going to break this into two parts. The part two will be out 24 hours from the release of part one. So hopefully you've had enough for the evening and you'd like to give it a day. And then you can process the more modern history of the conflict between NATO, Ukraine, and Russia. It's the most important historical period. So I think you guys will find it highly informative, uh, maybe not entertaining, but certainly vital information that we all need to be privy to so that we can actually discuss this in an intelligent fashion, exactly the opposite of what our media would like us to do. But I prefer to speak from a place of actual understanding, as do you as a viewer and subscriber and like button hitter and comment lever and a sharer of this humble program, Liberty Lockdown. If you guys want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. And before you get out of here, make sure you go download the Converso Messenger app, C-O-N-V-E-R-S-O. It's over on Apple Play Store or uh, Google Play Store. Yeah, go get it. I will catch you guys next week with the great Vivek Ramaswamy. You heard that right. He reached out to me today. And, uh, and we're going to make it happen. So I cannot wait. I am really, really looking forward to that conversation. He is one of the best when it comes to ESG. And I have some differences of opinion, but I hope to sort them out with him live with you guys next week. Don't miss it. See you soon. We're out. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?